Another podcast brought to you by Team Corker. We are diving into a conversation this week with someone who it feels like it took, you know, not three false starts, just three conversations before I could actually hit record because her stories, her detail, her passion, her anger, her joy, her pride, her life experience that I will just never quite understand had me hanging on to every freaking syllable. Gretchen is currently working with a dear friend of the Corker Co, Brooke out of New York with Class Rebel. And they are here to provide education for everyone, allowing education to be accessible. And on that scale, they are also diving deeply into organizations and demanding and commanding that organizations level up and reconsider what education really matters internally. One of those conversations is undeniably DEI. And DEI in America, goodness gracious, it requires a level up. It's required everywhere, not just in America. Yet, as I sit here in Canada, I realize that it's a little bit different than America. And I hope that we can learn from what the heck is going on on the other side of the border. Goodness gracious, I don't even know how to give this woman a proper intro. She is worth listening to. She is worth diving into going down the rabbit hole on the internet to read about the work that she has done and then reaching out to Class Rebel to work with her deeply within your organization to be better and do better and to have a leader like her implore you to do the right thing. Without further ado, buckle up. This is Gretchen. This is an intro like none other that deserves every minute of your time. And I hope that you see the world through a different color of glass when you're done listening to this show. Enjoy. There are so many different conversations at play and I'm mindful that you currently reside in America and I reside in Canada and I am so mindful of how different our healthcare systems are and what is at play and not for a second will I pretend to know what goes on in America but what I will tell you is that it hurts my heart when I hear American healthcare stories because nothing nothing both exemplifies or demonstrates privilege to me mm. like that healthcare system. So gosh. And I think we do need to talk about it to help people understand, which is a little bit of the essence of this conversation of the third option or the other mm. options or the other yeah. ways that we can look at things in this world. So before we dive in, Gretchen, will you do me the sweet honor of just introducing yourself in your words and share with us who you are, however you would like. Sure. So I'm Gretchen Chantel Bellamy, and my story begins in 1871. My grandfather, who was born in rural North Carolina, Statesville, he was a laborer, which is really like a, a slave um, with a continuation of. He was a sharecropper. So still, even though he wasn't shackled, he 
was giving all of his money away to the person who owned the land. And he had 21 kids. Um, my father was number 20, actually, second to last. He's now 81. He was born in 1942, and my grandfather was 70 when my dad was born. And there are two left, so my dad and my uncle, uh, the youngest one. So my dad, when he was about to graduate from high school, he was told by his football coach that he, uh, well, I don't want to say the word. Ends don't go to college, like black people don't go to college and you might as well quit. So my dad quit and he then went on and had 26 children. So he tried to repopulate the earth. <laughs> I'm eighth from the end and I'm the first one to go to college. I'm the first one to go on to graduate or professional school. So my dad is black. My mom is white. She's an only child. So she's <laughs> was a, a, a big gap there. And she is a nurse, but at the time when she became a nurse, graduated in 1966, I believe, you didn't go to college. You went to nursing school, which was different. The year that I graduated from college in 1999, my father got his GED, which is a high school equivalency. So when I graduated, well, I guess I should say before, the things that you don't know about me, I went to American University first and I had a terrible car crash. Well, not me, my boyfriend's best friend, and we were meant to be in that car. And that was in my sophomore year. And I decided at the end of my third semester of school that I would leave American University and just take a semester off and apply to transfer somewhere else because it was so traumatizing. And so when I transferred to the University of Delaware, I immediately went to the UK in 1997. I had every hair color that you can imagine. And I started with green and got my tongue pierced and my mom was like freaking out, you know, but then like let it go because she knew like I'm just who I am. And I went on a trip to Malaysia. She didn't know. No one knew where I was <laughs> for my flatmates, but I would never do that again because that has a bunch of stories with it, but good and not so good. But I saw poverty in a way that I'd never seen it before. And I knew that the life I was living, it was too fast. I needed to slow down. And so when I finally went back onto campus, when that semester was over, I, well, I worked at Blockbuster for a little bit because that was like my dream job back then. Let's get some videos, right? But then I decided that I wanted something different. And so I took a job as a assistant manager of a homeless shelter and Within a few months, my boss quit. The World Wide Web was just starting and email. And I found out because the board of directors included me on an email. I was like, what do we tell Gretchen? So I, I did that, ended up doing that full time. And I graduated. I continued doing that job. And I went to work at an outplacement drug and alcohol facility. And then my clients started to overlap. And that wasn't good. So I, and I really loved the homeless shelter. I loved the woman who was my boss. Her name was Dorothy Medeiros. And she was a nun. She was just the loveliest, kindest person who was an advocate. So when I think about people who like really, like supervisors, bosses, who've had such a positive impact, she's one of them. And I probably have like three who I'm like, wow, like you changed my life because of the way that you listened and the way that you coached me. I then, I left the job at the outplacement drug and alcohol facility and I went to become a bankruptcy paralegal. And so I was doing both jobs still. And I decided that I wanted to go to Peace Corps. I had a boyfriend, it's not like this really great story, but I also knew I needed to get away from him. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. They messed up a bit on my application. They separated my medical away. I was supposed to go to Cote d'Ivoire. 
And then they're like, oh, wait, oh, we messed up. And so I had to wait an extra five months that I ended up going to Cameroon, which, you know, was life-changing for a number of reasons because I ended up marrying one of our language instructors. Before I went, they gave me extra time. I studied for the LSAT so I could go to law school. Went to Peace Corps as a small business advisor. And that was just an amazing experience to have get a one-way ticket to a place that you don't even know. And you don't know how you're going to get home or when you're going to get home. You kind of do, right? It's 27 months. But as you said, like, it's a long time. Yeah, so I did that and then got sick. So I came back and got married. I then went to law school at Duke. I got my JD and an LLM in international and comparative law. And when I was there, because I was doing the LLM, I was able to create my own externship. And I didn't really particularly like law school not necessarily even the people who were there because I was older, but I was one of like 17 black people out of 200, like of minority people. So it was, there wasn't a lot going on. And it was the first time I actually had black girlfriends. Like I just, they don't fit in anywhere. Like I'm too dark in some respects, I'm too light for others. And so, yeah, I just kind of live in this gray space. So it was really interesting to have those women as my friends. And it was more because no one else really wanted to talk to us. So I decided that I was going to do the externship. I went to Zimbabwe and I was doing children's rights and child protection law work. Then I went back. So I did a summer in New York City with a huge law firm. Might even still be the biggest in the world. And then that second summer, I did a month so I could get my full-time job offer, which I did. But I then went back to Kenya, finished my LLM studies. I had to do a, a program abroad. And what made me really angry about that was not the program, it was the fact that Duke took away one of my scholarships for the summer program because I didn't do theirs. Not understanding that people have different dreams and we shouldn't be put in a box. I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll give up the money, right? I'm going to have a mortgage on my brain anyway but it just angered me so much. And so I came back from that and I turned down my law firm offer. Um, I used the money that I made to build my, well, now my former husband, but still one of my best friends in life, used that to build a house for their family and put the refrigerator and Cali furnished it all. And I don't have one regret about that. I have one law professor who saw me, who had been in Kenya and was like, Gretchen, I'm eating my 10 cent chapati. He's on this luxury vacation. He's like, you were there, right? Yeah. He's like, what do you think about coming and starting a law journal with me? I was like, hmm, okay. And so we started Legal Strategy Law Journal at Duke together. And then he asked me what I was going to do afterward. And I was like, I don't know yet. And I was pregnant my whole third year of law school. And so, yeah, I was working. I was a teaching assistant for national security for undergrad. I was just doing all clinics, death penalty clinic, the children's law clinic. Age Legal Assistance Project, which was a clinic. And then I had my son and Professor McGovern offered me a research fellowship and he is largest class action settlement. And he has a special master for that. And so I did that with him. Um, we worked on global research analysts, which was the largest securities class action, which is really like kind of the entry point into diversity, equity and inclusion. So I'll move us along in time, but I think that's important to see like how people can see those things that are special in you and he liked me because I showed up. Whenever I give talks to young people, I'm like, just show up. You will find some beautiful opportunity through that. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with him for several years, had my son, and that was really great. And then I went 
on, there was a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina that needed a lawyer to stand in for two who um, one had a clerkship, one's wife had a baby. So I did that. And so that's when I was really doing securities law, commercial law. And that's where I started writing the risk sections for publicly traded companies for their annual reporting. And I did that, but it's very niche and I don't want to be put in a box like I said earlier. And it was like every day, like, I'm like, did they really change the rule in the last 24 hours? But I had to check everything every single day. And I was just like, that's too monotonous, which was fine because those guys were going to come back anyway. So I started my passion project with the American Bar Association. I did that with the Africa Committee. And then I got a new position at the University of Miami School of Law as the director of public in, international public interest and pro bono programs. So helping law students to get positions abroad. Um, I also created something called the African Probate and Policy Initiative. And I took four law students and my son, who was seven at the time, to Tanzania to draft wills for marginalized men and women across the country. We had four stops. So, you know, having to understand all the three types of law that are practiced there. And that's like customary law, right? We have Sharia law and then you have common law. So we all had to learn how they interacted. And we did 105 wills and 300 hours in two months. Yeah, so that was really amazing. And I got large downloads of emails because I always have a connection. And I said yes to moderating a presidential showcase panel for the American Bar Association. So at that point I had become the diversity officer for the section of international law. So there I was, I was in front of 500 people and I ended up getting two job offers, one with the Minority Corporate Council Association, one with Walmart. And I like to joke that I was the fastest hire ever at Walmart because I had my job offer in hand. And then they're like, wait, did you apply for the job? <laughs> well, so I was like literally one month, I went through the whole process. I don't know how that worked out, but I moved to Arkansas with my son and there I was an assistant general counsel in charge of global diversity, equity and inclusion. And I consulted out to global security, ethics, and compliance. So I did all manners of things. So I created supervisor school for attorneys supervising others to a whole talent development process and program for our staff to the attorneys who weren't supervising up to the executives. I also received a goal that came straight down like from the CEO that said, we want a truly global legal department. And so I went and did a study in LATAM and Central America and in Chile, Argentina, Mexico, and Costa Rica. That was also very fascinating. We could talk about more another time perhaps because of the things that I was told, but we ultimately decided that we'd roll the program out in Chile because it was the most open. I could say the word gay and not fear for my life and that, those sorts of things. And we changed the lives of seven law students because there were no Mapuche is the largest indigenous group, not one Mapuche person working in a majority firm. They all just hung their shingles. This was an opportunity to teach them English, but also the table manners, I put that in quotes, that I was told they didn't have. And so because of that, we won the Martin Luther King Jr. Visionary Award. And then I was promoted to be a senior strategist, the Global Office for Culture, Diversity, and Inclusion. There, I was really looking at how do we use data to prove or disprove our hypotheses. That was pretty interesting. And in the meantime, I continued with my work with the American Bar Association. And I was on a bunch of standing committees, but then I was put on the Commission for Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Profession. And at the same time, I started an organization 
locally called Bentonville Public School Citizens for Equality. So I wanted my son to be taught by any teacher, the best teacher that's out there. And I don't care who's in their bed. I don't care, you know, their genetic information. I mean, there's a lot of things that weren't covered. Veteran status wasn't covered. Because of that, I started getting death threats. It was really horrible. I had to have special police driving around my house to make sure that my son and I were secure. And I just like couldn't take that anymore. I actually moved out of Bentonville to Fayetteville. And then I was like, I gotta leave. And so I was offered the position of senior director for DEI at UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And while I was doing that, I continued with the ABA and I was in charge of something called the Model Diversity Survey. So really making sure that all companies of our corporate signatories could have access to the exact same data. So you would have some law firms that would include like their China office. So they'd be 14% Asian. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't even square up by any means. And so that was the attempt. And so because of that work, I did the Secretary General, Baroness Scotland, Patricia Scotland, asked me to roll that out in the UK and then ultimately all of the Commonwealth countries. So far we've rolled it out in the UK through Interlaw Diversity Forum, which is awesome. I ended up being courted by McDonald's to be in charge of international. I was the senior director in charge of international DEI. And that was 118 countries. And there I was able to really look at how do you measure diversity, equity, and inclusion with a local point of view. So what does it look like in the German market to what does it look like in the Portuguese market, et cetera. Thinking through that and then taking the global DEI benchmarks and creating a whole evaluation toolkit. And yeah. then Brooke gave me an opportunity <laughs> I couldn't resist. Brooke was hardcore, like come work for Class Rebel. And given my background that I just told you about, education is really important to me and having access to education, um, yeah. making sure it's affordable. So yeah. working there, is, that's the really beautiful part of life. And then I yeah. also have a dog, two dogs named Petey and Pablo. No relation to Petey Pablo, the North Carolina rapper. I just didn't know. My son wanted to name the dog Escobar because he was really interested in the drug trade. He was like, whoa, like, what is this? And so I said, let's do something less obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's <is> Pablo. <laughs> Pablo. He is the Fabio of dogs. He's literally like the most beautiful dog anybody has ever seen. So that's oh, bless. Wait, can you just tell us what kind of dogs you have? Sure. So Petey is a 12-year-old poodle Wheaton Terrier mix. He's about 23 pounds, small. Rescued him from the streets of Miami. He came to us with a missing little tooth when he was one. Pablo is an Australian shepherd golden retriever mix but called a blue dog because he's completely gray and he has like these ear feathers and tail feathers like what they call them like it's like, literally like fabio's hair drop dead gorgeous yeah i love that. i love it well you love your dogs and before we hit record today we also know your love is deep for your son and it's a beautiful thing to understand everything you've done to date for yourself professionally through the lens of education. And it's really powerful to hear what you're doing for your son and providing the option. And, you know, like we were talking about healthcare, 
schools in Canada are also very different and the education system is different around the world and what does it mean for international students and I think the lens through which you are showing up for us in the space that is DEI is so intergenerational it's not just McDonald's it's not just Walmart so I'm going to make sure there's links so people can dive deeper into that side of your world I just Mm -hmm. want to ask you a few specific questions almost through the lens of the future if you will, because I think perhaps often we look to the past to help create the future. And Mm -hmm. I'm really wondering in this moment in time, some of your wishes and visions for the future. So as you were speaking about your sweet nun, she caught me. I mean, I wish I could have worked for a nun. I'm wondering who inspires you today. And when you're in the place that you're in, who are you looking to as a true leader and what are you looking for that would perhaps, you know, in some respects, emulate the nun? Dorothy, well, I'm well, sorry. Oh, someone, well, no, it's okay, Dorothy. It's, so is your question, who would I want to lead me? Or is it, yeah, I guess I just want to know, is it that piece or is it like, what is it that I, because um, I look up to all different types of people and it's a blend of their, I want to know Mm -hmm. a leader who inspires you. I don't think they need to lead you because I think you're at a place now that you don't need to go work for one leader. That's not what it's about. But in this state of the world, in the state of what's happening, I'm curious who you look to and say they are a leader who I am inspired by. This is a hard question. I think it's my personality. The things that I admire they come from different people and there's not like, I would say like Dr. Richard Harvey is a great person because of his expertise in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But like you said, I'm more than that. And I just have had such great fortune in like just a very short period of time. The last month, um, there's a woman named Abella Colby, who she was the first person to head up Africa policy at Facebook. I've known her for years. In fact, we got hooked up because we had a mutual friend who was in Peace Corps with me. And I saw her and I said to you that I didn't have Black girlfriends before. And she asked me to stay in London um, last month, a little bit longer. And so I could go to a dinner that was just all Black people, startup founders, this and that, right? And that was one of the best nights that I've ever had because I got to listen well, there's a question. I, th- I asked you my question, didn't I? So like that question, like, because it gets to the heart of what people are about inside. I loved it. And I'll, I'll share it if that becomes a question at the end. But so I'd say her. And then this woman that I met at that dinner who came and stayed with me last week, who also has had maybe comforting to know that people don't compromise their values. And they live up. And so some of the things, many of the things that I've experienced in the workplace, they've experienced. And to see them be able to rise above, I would say that they're one amongst or two amongst many who I look to for that. And if I wanted anything in a leader, it's that. Like, be true to your word and your values. And don't Mm -hmm. just try to get people in the door because, you know, loyalty is fleeting. And I think that the job market, as we see it today, people aren't staying like at McDonald's at 50 years. And there's very few people in in between, right? It's like 
kind of the opposite ends, new people and then people who've been there a long time. You know, I, when I think about what genuineness means um, mm. and values mean, that is your word is your bond. So that's what I would say. I don't have yeah. a specific book or anything like that. Yeah. I take from what I like to and mm-hmm. the rest behind. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And I love, I mean, I was going to prompt you to say like, if you had a Venn diagram of three people mm. and you went there on your own with three, because the beauty is in the intersectionality of it. The beauty is that there isn't one person and you could have said your dogs for all intents and purposes. Right. It's really powerful to hear that there are three different characters that you look to for three different reasons and together that is a vision. And I think that's really powerful because I think a lot of your work comes from the intersectionality of how do we bring up people that look like me? How do we bring up a conversation that's not being had? How do I go against a scholarship because this work is more important, is more true to what I value? So it's no surprise that here we are at a Venn diagram. I have to ask you two questions and I'm mindful of time and I'm mindful that these might feel charged. I know, like, oh, do we have like, what, two minutes? (laughs) I want to know what makes you angry right now. Mm, Everything. What makes me angry is actually the opposite of what I just said to you. Okay. And that's why I would say everything. People not sticking to their values or their word, right? I don't like liars. I can think of like one trait in a human being that I dislike more. It is liars. And, you know, I have to be able to strike a balance between did someone just not follow through because of X, Y, Z reason, or did they lie? And it goes back to that loyalty piece and how like employees are looking at their employers. Like, did you just put the black box up? Because, you know, everybody, every company was putting a black box up when George Floyd was murdered and putting that on their social and all that stuff? Or do you really walk the walk? And so the things that make me angry are when you have a billionaires who are influencing or as powerful as elected officials, that makes me really angry. And trying to tell us that we have to pay to have a voice on social media website, stuff like that. Or the selfishness of not providing food, right? The grain that we, and fertilizer um, that would produce food that would come out of Ukraine and Russia makes me angry. It makes me angry to think about people in Finland now taking iodine pills, the very real potential of war, right? Of nuclear war there um, in Europe. I hate that I can't go see the world in the way that the first airplane I ever rode was when I was 18 years old. And I flew from Allentown, Pennsylvania to Washington, DC. And knowing that there are so many places that I can't just pick up and go to now because it seems like the world is on fire. And right now I just think everybody's hurting. So that's why I still continue on because we're all hurt. I think, you know, COVID did a number personally, professionally on everybody, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm angry at a lot of things because what we're not doing is we're not building a different system, right? Yeah. We say this doesn't work, right? Yeah. But what are we building over here? We have to still play in this yard, right? Um, on the right hand, but then on the left hand, we should be building what would be better. What would be the thing to replace it? Because it's not about yeah. just replacing people. It's about replacing the system. 
Yeah. The system. Well, that's the perfect segue into the next question, which is where or who are you turning to for hope right now? My son. Mm, Say more if you would. Yeah. So my son is the most beautiful human being. And I'm sure every parent or most parents would say that, right? But there's something special about what I have with him. And, you know, we're going through the college application process and he wrote an essay about black solidarity and black excellence and the tension between the two. And when I think about what he is capable of, I mean, like the letter that he wrote me, so he writes letters. And if you ever get a Stefan So letter, let me tell you, you're, you're going to cry. There's no doubt. I had my friends who visited last week crying as I read this letter to them because he's like, it has been such a joy to watch you grow as a sister, as a mother, as a, as a lawyer. I mean, just like went and like, it's been a beautiful journey with you and, you know, I'm leaving, but at least now, you know, we're going to, our journey doesn't stop here. And as I always tell him that it's the end of my uninterrupted time with him right? Now I have to give him to the world. And so I look at him. He's 40. He's smart. He's kind, loving, caring, all of these wonderful words. And he's still a teenager. Like, don't let, like, I won't let it get twisted. Like he's, you know, something you know, perfect. But yeah, that's who I would pick. I need the world to be okay for him when I'm not here. Yeah. 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 I think there is, I mean, we spoke of the intersectionality and there is a reality that once upon a time, we thought that work was some safe bubble and home was some safe bubble. And now what we know to be true is that there is no safe bubble, a company putting up a black square or what goes on at a school, Mm -hmm. who knows what goes on on the street and what goes on on the field and what goes on at the restaurant or the bar. And there are all of these places. And I just think that you know, I wish we could break down the walls that say I am DEI for McDonald's, because what is really needed is the champions for all of the humans that work at McDonald's in all areas of their lives. And I hope that we get to inject those kinds of conversations and that kind of work into organizations, because I don't necessarily know that we can look outside of let's call it corporate America at times for safety, for that development. And if we know we can inject it in corporations, like let's go there, let's Mm -hmm. start there and help create humans in this world, not just employees. This is where my approach to doing DEI work differs from a lot of people is that I want it to be embedded because it will go to your home as well, your personal life. Yeah. you look at an organization and you think about what are all the functions of a business <clears throat> from marketing to HR to R&D research and development and product development. When you think about all of those different parts of a business, that's where you're like, okay, if I'm talking to the marketing people, I'm not in HR because DEI doesn't belong there, right? It's more than just like, oh, we need to count people. It's about how are you protecting your brain? And it's the same when you, if I am able to teach marketing professionals, like this is what you should consider as you're making your decisions on campaigns, you know, that's something that they will take back to their homes and be like, oh, well, let me think about that. And if we were able to do that, rather than just say, let's do unconscious bias training, let's, it needs to be really fair steps, very tactical, right? Your strategy and then tactics. I think that people's lives would change out. Not, I think, I know, yeah. I, yeah. I know. 
Yeah, yeah. I think like the mic drop of many moments in this conversation is let's get DEI out of HR and let's realize the impact that it infiltrates across an organization and putting it as like a subset, you know, while I'm a a passionate recruiter, I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, recruiting can fit in HR because we are helping to generate human capital, human resources into a company. That's HR. Like, let's call it what it is, label it, Mm -hmm. put it in the box. Don't label DEI as a human resource. Don't label it in such a way. It is the most important, the most impeccable, the most essential training for any human to experience. And Mm -hmm. I think, how do we infiltrate organizations and hearts and minds in that way. So I can't wait for the intersectionality of all of it and the work that, you know, we will experience more of with you. I have to wrap with one final question, which is the last question we ask all guests on Uncorked. And that is what is making your heart beat faster today, Gretchen? Going to see my son play basketball. Ah, (laughs) well, he's at a prep school for this last year because he'd already finished all his credits and stuff for graduation. And so, you know, given COVID and his interrupted, like he did not have a normal, like I put in quotes, a normal high school experience by American standards. So yeah, like letting him live his dream. And so I love to see him play. And I'm like, go buddy, go. Sit in every game. Like, so go buddy, go. Go buddy, go. Thank you for every minute, Gretchen. I'm excited to continue the conversation and you've hit my heart and you make me sit and really think about how I want to show up in the world differently and who I want to show up as and with. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was really fun. More soon. 